Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. We have such a great show today. I'm so excited for you guys to hear from our guest. Phil, who do we have today? We have Bethany Williams, PhD. She's the founder of Exile International, the author of the book Color of Grace. And uh, she actually sat down last year KFO Summit with Sam Burgess, who, you know, hopefully you'll be hearing more from. Uh, she was able to do this interview with Bethany. And, uh, you know, there's just so much good stuff in it. I can't wait to get to it. Before we get to it, though, I do want to remind you all out there. Um, go to go to the uh, website. Check out the show notes. Look at all the other resources that are there. Listen to some other podcasts to be learning. Um, also, go to iTunes and, and rate and review the show. That, that would help us so much. We ask you to do that for us and, and for others because it will get the show out to more people. Um, the other thing that we, we've talked about a few times and, you know, just want to be able to give you guys the opportunity to partner with us financially as well. And you can do that at providenceworld.com and go to the giving tab. And, uh, you know, we, we'd appreciate that greatly. So without more from me, I'm going to get you to Sam and Bethany Williams. Here you go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. We are recording from KFO Summit 2017 here in Nashville, Tennessee, and I have Dr. Bethany Williams with me here in the studio. Bethany has a PhD in counseling and psychology. She and her husband co-founded Exile International, which ministers to child soldiers in East Africa. She is also the author of The Color of Grace book, which outlines her personal story and how that prepared her for working with child soldiers in East Africa. So welcome, Bethany, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're here at KFO. So tell me a little bit about how KFO specifically has influenced your engagement in the orphan care crisis. Sure. Um, well, you know, I don't think that I knew a lot about KFO until we started doing work overseas with children orphaned by war. Um, and when you see children who have no parents, no family, living in huts by themselves, of course it you know tugs on your heartstrings, and you know something has to be done. And then finding about about KFO and realizing there are all of these people um, who really take the orphan crisis seriously, and they support each other, and they love each other, and um, we're here to kind of learn and support and lift up each other in prayer. Um, so it was for me. It was it was that feeling of oh, you're not alone. So it, it's been really important in our walk. Yeah, absolutely. I can 100% relate to the feeling of finding others who are passionate about not just orphans but about best practice on orphan care and really doing it in the right way. So we're going to launch into how you're engaging in the orphan care crisis. And um, so I'm going to start with having you provide us a little bit of context about the, the child soldier crisis in East Africa. I know that in the early 2010s, we, there was a lot of exposure because of organizations like Invisible Children that um, really brought awareness, particularly about Joseph Kony and the LRA, to the West. But in the last couple of years, we haven't heard a lot about that in the West. And so just update us on that conflict, update us on what's going on over there, and update us on the status of child soldiers. Sure. So I'll kind of define a child soldier just so people, um, it's really a hard concept to, to, to um, wrap your head around. Um, but a child soldier is a child under the age of 18 who has been kidnapped, 
to fight in a war, or sometimes they're used as porters, um, sex slaves. Average age is around 12 years old. Um, the average time in captivity is around three years. Um, but you're right. I think invisible children played a really big role in bringing the crisis of child soldiering um, to the West, which I think was really important. And what we find is the children that we work with, and, and we work with both rescued child soldiers and children who've been orphaned by war. But even of the child soldiers that we work with, 80 to 90% of them have been orphaned because often their parents have been killed in the war. Um, so it's really tragic. In terms of um, stats or statistics, there are around 300,000 child soldiers in the world. And in, in the area that we work, so we work in DR Congo and Uganda. Um, <clears throat> and if you count the LRA crisis, which is no longer going on in Uganda, it's going on in other countries, but there are around 100,000 children who've been kidnapped just in that small area. Um, we work pretty closely with the UN, so we'll visit the UN every time we go over for programming trips. And, and they tell us that around 100 children are rescued just in that Goma, Congo area and surrounding villages every month. So it's definitely still going on. Um, the crisis is, is definitely there. In terms of the LRA, we're asked that a lot. What's going on with Joseph Kony? Where is he now? Is he still alive? And um, the, and the research that we have read and the organizations that we work really closely with, um, they say their best guess is that he is in Sudan right now. So he is still alive. The LRA actually is still active. Um, just recently, the U.S. decided or, or the administration decided to pull U.S. troops out of trying to search for Joseph Kony. Uh, so the fear is actually that the LRA will start really amping up and abducting children again. So that's something we're really prayerful about. Why is it so difficult to find him? I mean, what kind of organization does he have surrounding him that's making this a challenge? Yeah, um, it's a hard question to answer because you would think, you know, the war started well over 20 years ago and no one has been able to capture him. Um, there's a lot of different theories on that. So, so right now it's kind of like when Osama bin Laden, whenever people were trying to find Osama bin Laden, um, you've got a bunch of caves and you have, it's not like you can just kind of knock on a door and find him. The other issue, or I guess the other theory, is it's a spiritual issue. So we've had kids that we've worked with tell us about which doctors that he has. We've um, separately, they've told us really strange stories about even seeing him transform into an animal. So there's a, there's a deep, deep spiritual aspect. Um, because, the, the, you know, when you, when you learn about the LRA, you, you realize that their tactics are, are truly, truly evil. Cutting the limbs off of people, cutting lips, cutting ears off. And um, it, things that you would think that man can't even think up, you know, the horror that they do. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot. It, it's a deep and wide issue, but um, I'm still hopeful that he can be captured. I think it's important for the kids that have been abducted. The LRA themselves abducted around 50,000 children just in, in the time of the war in Uganda. Um, so those kids really need some closure, and I'm just really prayerful that, that, they'll find, that they'll find him. What began the conflict? What's the purpose? So the areas that we work, um, <clears throat> Uganda um, is kind of, is, the, the conflict isn't going on in Uganda anymore. Um, the LRA, like I said, 
they're in different countries. In DR Congo, the area that we work there, there are around 30 documented rebel groups. So, and they abduct, you know, hundreds of children, thousands of children. The conflict there is still very, very active. And the, the fuel for the war in Congo is often minerals. So there is the mineral called Colton, and it's in our phones, in our computer. Um, the majority of the world's Colton actually comes from that area. So the rebels are very active in um, trying to take power over certain areas of Congo so that they can have rights to the minerals. And then, and then there's tribal conflict. So again, it's, it's very deep and wide. Um, but they abduct the children because they're so easily brainwashed. And they can, if you abduct a, abduct a child at 12 years old and you brainwash him and you teach him how to use a gun, he's extremely dangerous. And he's just going to do whatever you tell him to do, especially if he has been forced to kill his family or um, he's been traumatized in other ways. The rebel group, in a way, actually becomes his family. Um, and it speaks to kind of, again, the, the issue of them being orphaned. Because they don't, often they don't have a family to go back to. Or they've been told they don't have a family to go back to. And they've been told, if you escape or if I let you go, no one will accept you back. And in, in difficult circumstances, it's actually true. Thank you for providing that context. So I want to switch now to, um, while this conflict is raging in East Africa, you personally are walking through a, a story that particularly prepared you for stepping into this conflict. So talk us to us uh, a little bit about what that looked like in your life um, and, and how that prepared you to be able to engage with these kids in a really personal and effective way. Yeah, so um, I had actually gone through my own journey through trauma. I had been um, married for actually 10 years. It ended in a really, really difficult divorce. Um, the year after that, I'd gone through even more trauma. Uh, I was a counselor at the time, really. I was supposed to have the answers to everything, and I found myself severely depressed, suicidal, um, really needing help. And it was in reaching out to help for help that led me into a treatment center for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was there, actually, um, I'd sold my car to pay for treatment. And the last Sunday that I was there, I walked to the nearest church, and there was a man speaking who had survived the genocide. And he started talking about um, working in conflict zones with traumatized uh, women and, and talking about peace and reconciliation. And I started thinking, is it possible, could it even be possible that my background in counseling and then my journey through trauma and everything that I'd learned, if I could help kids one day through that? Because, you know, my kids, is, it's, it's, they've just always had my heart and I've always worked with the kids even in my counseling practice. So um, fast forward, I actually went to Congo for the first time with that organization that I connected with while I was on, in treatment. So I joke a lot that reaching out for help and getting treatment led me into a war zone, and it kind of did. So that was in 2008 um, when I went to Congo for the first time and met child soldiers, sat with them, um, went to an orphanage that had a lot of child soldiers in the orphanage, and they pulled me aside, asked if they could come home with me, asked me to be their mom, um, sat with children who had seen such horror in terms of their parents being killed in, in really, really evil ways. And they couldn't speak because they were so traumatized. And I knew, I knew what a flashback was, and I knew what a nightmare was. And so I think 
my heart connected with them in that deep, soulful way. I knew the trauma that I went through was nothing compared to the trauma that they went through. But, but I know for me, I needed someone to believe in me at one point in my life. And so I so desperately wanted them to know that the world had not forgotten about them and that people believed in them, that they saw them for more than what they were forced to do when they were in captivity. So then came back and probably two weeks later founded Exile International um, on this kind of crazy mission of, I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, do you know these kids are being kidnapped? Like, do you know the reality of what's going on? Because we don't hear about that a lot. Um, and I was in full-time private practice at the time, had finally gotten my head above water a little bit, financially in a pretty good shape. And so, of course, people didn't understand that. They thought I was a little crazy. And, um, but I knew this is what I was supposed to do. Great. So I want to walk back a few steps uh, to the mental illness aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're talking about here at CAFO. We're talking about the inner life, really focusing on um, caring for our caregivers making sure that the people who are caring for these children also have vulnerable environments where they can produce mental health, where they can be held accountable, where they can engage in confession, engage in all the practices that provides for a healthy mind as they're trying to treat children um, who are struggling in so many areas of trauma. And uh, it was interesting, a couple of days ago, they shared that uh, a large majority of people who are working in childcare for vulnerable kids actually have trauma in their own lives. So uh, talk to us a little bit about um, what it was like to be a counselor, to be a caregiver, and why it was so difficult for you to allow yourself to, uh, to really admit that you too, or, or find help for yourself because of your specific position as a helper to others? Yeah, I think that that is a great question. And I talk about that a lot in, in my book, The Color of Grace, how um, we are programmed as leaders to say everything is fine and I'm strong and, and hide reality, honestly. Um, but when you, what I found in my journey is, is hiding my reality, which I did for several, several years, um, what happens is that part of your energy, energy goes toward heart, hiding the pain that you're going through. And then you have this other amount of energy that you're trying to care give and to love and to just survive. And, and what happens whenever you're able to be free, you're able to find someone that you trust and say, you know what, I'm not okay. And this is really what I'm struggling with. You have all of this energy you can put into healing, but we really can't heal when we're hiding. We can't do both. And I think as leaders and as caregivers, we put a lot of energy sometimes into hiding the reality that we're going through or even questions that we have. Like we have moments of, I don't know how to do this or I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and that's that beautiful opportunity that someone can speak into your life and say, I love you even though you're a mess. And really, I'm a mess too, so let's try to figure this out together. Um, and, and in terms of trauma, it's, it's like a cancer to the trauma. So with our, with our kids a lot, we, we talk a lot about the more you tell your story to someone who's safe, the more God can heal your heart. But if you hide your trauma... The hiding part is almost like a cancer to your wounds, and so it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But being able to be honest and tell your story and tell your reality 
um, the healing can really start to begin. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you've, you've shared with us the inspiration behind Exile International and how it came about. Tell us about the little, the mission and vision. I mean, what is, what are you really trying to accomplish with these kids? So the vision from the very beginning, um, and really the dream was, could these kids do more than just survive? So if we provided trauma care and, and um, specifically art-focused trauma care, so we uh, work with the kids in, in dancing and, and using drama and art and helping them come back to life again. But past that, could they actually be taught how to be peace leaders in their country? Um, so that was the vision from the beginning, is to use a three-tier curricula-based model. One was art-focused trauma care, and then the second was peace-building and conflict resolution skills, and then the third, leadership skills. So when they graduate from the program, they've, they are they've known what it's like to go through deep trauma that they're healed from. And so they have even a bigger passion to be peace leaders in their country. And we're actually seeing it happen. We're seeing our graduates go back into their villages and recreate the whole program and work with 60, 70, 80 rescue child soldiers that we could never really work with because we've not been through that level of trauma. So um, all of the programs are run by local leaders, which again was the vision from the very beginning. Uh, we haven't been through war. Um, my husband, Matthew, and I run the organization together and we're trained counselors, but we only speak English and a little bit of Swahili. So, um, and, and a lot of the kids, especially in Congo, they don't know English. So it's really important, we feel like, for local leaders to run the programs. Um, we're working with 1,300 kids providing holistic rehabilitative care. And so what that means is healing of the spirit, healing of the mind, and healing of the body. Um, and for the spirit, of course, that's discipleship, for you know, definitely telling them about the Lord and how loved that they are, but then also art-focused trauma care and peace-building skills. And then we also provide education, and that's something that we feel like is really, really important um, to lift them out of poverty because most of these kids are living either in huts by themselves or just come out of the bush, um, and then healing of the body, which is providing medical, medical care and food. And what results are you seeing? So amazing. Um, we just did some research, and we found out that there was a 70% decrease in trauma symptoms for kids who have been in the program for two years, which that really surprised us. Like, we can see the kids coming back to life again. Um, we can see them being healed. We see them dreaming again. Uh, but that was a huge decrease in trauma. And I think, you know, you know one thing that we found is that um, when you see them beyond what they were forced to do, you see them beyond a child that was forced to kill, you see them beyond an orphan, you see them beyond a sex slave, and you speak life into them and you say, you know what, I think that you can change your community. Not just receive healing, not just receive grace, but really change your nation. They look at themselves, uh, they, they look at their pain as deeply purposeful because they realize that they wouldn't be able to change their community had they not gone through what, that, what they've gone through. So we actually don't use the term former child soldier and we don't use the term orphan. So we call them young peacemakers. And then for the orphan, we call them hope children. So they refer to themselves, I'm a YPM, I'm a young peacemaker, or I'm a hope child. Uh, and it truly just gives them a new identity. And I think that plays a huge role in their healing. 
So you were talking to me earlier about some of the personal stories that you, that you carry with you, and a couple of them are included in in your book. Um, tell us tell us just one or two about uh, you know a personal story from one of these kids that's been affected by your program. Yeah, well, I you know Baraka always comes to mind. He's the first young man that really I think about when I when I think about survival. So he was abducted twice by two different rebel forces. So once when he was 12, and then he escaped, and once again when he was 15. And the area that he lives in, the village area that he lives in, it's not uncommon. A lot of those kids have been abducted twice by two different rebel groups. Um, so you can imagine severely traumatized. He had lost his dad in the war. Um, but he came into the program, and we started to see him kind of come back to life again. And he started singing in the choir, and. Um, you just see the passion for Jesus in his eyes. So he graduated probably about a year and a half ago, and we didn't even know this, but he had, had re returned home. He was reunified um, with his mom, and all on his own, he started a Bible study with a very rebel group that abducted him. So he would, he would message me, and he would say, Mom, I need Bibles because the rebels want Bibles. And I was like, what are you doing? What do you mean the rebels want Bibles? And so we made sure he had Bibles, and he would take them to the rebels, and he would do Bible study with them, even though he knew it was dangerous. And we would even, you know, of course, my mama's heart, I'm like, Baraka, let's talk about safety. And he said, but that's why God saved me. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. So not only that, then he started a peace club using the same model that we use, all on his own, with 60 other rescue child soldiers. So he's leading them every week through the trauma care curriculum that he's been trained in and the peace building curriculum. Um, so we're actually seeing the program organically replicate itself. Um, and, you know, Exile International, the word exile, the reason why we use that term is because the kids have been, one, exiled physically um, from their communities, but two, spiritually and emotionally exiled because they just think flashbacks are normal and this is just my life. Um, but also when they, when they try to go back home after they've escaped, then their, their communities will reject them. So often they become street children or they'll go back to the rebel army. So with Baraka's story, what we're seeing is that he didn't become a street child. He didn't go back into the rebel army. In fact, he used what the enemy intended for evil for good, which is just miraculous. So his story, you know, I always think about his story. And then the forgiveness stories really blow my mind. We've got kids who have been forced to kill their parents. And when asked, you know, what would you tell the rebels if they were here? And they would say, I would tell them that, I'm, that I would forgive them, just to come back home and, and I would forgive them, which is not of this world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And what's been done to them is not of this world, but their ability to forgive is also not of this world. So it's, it's almost like in the end, God has the card. He's like, oh, you did this to my kids? Well, they're able to forgive you. So love wins in the end. Wow, that's incredible. Um, okay, so talk to me a little bit about the short and long-term goals that you guys have for Exile, because I know that you're sort of building in a certain direction. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we're working with... Um, 1,300 kids in two countries. We've had an enormous growth spurt over the past couple of years. So we've added uh, a significant number of children to the program. Um, and we've added a significant number of staff as well. 
Um, our, our main goal over this next year is to firm up our foundation and to make sure we have a really good counselor to child ratio. Um, I think a Western mentality sometimes is just grow and be big and uh, we want to make sure that we're offering quality of care. Um, and we're seeing the program work so well, we really, the next step is to replicate the program in a model that could be used perhaps in Iraq or perhaps in South Sudan or other areas where there are, there are children who are deeply wounded, um, but they need some kind of structure to get to the other side of that. So um, I first heard of Exile International at the Praxis Pitch Night at Q Conference this year, which you and your husband did and was amazing. What a great night for everybody. So talk to us a little bit about kind of what Praxis is. And I know you guys have walked through that program. What did that look like? And how has that kind of altered the direction of exile? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't say enough good about Praxis. Um, so Praxis is a nonprofit fellowship program for entrepreneurs. Um, and they really focus on excellence, but then also spiritual groundedness. So you go really deep with um, mentorship uh, anything from board to programming overseas to budget, but also Sabbath, like how to care for yourself. Um, so we walked through that yesterday, uh, not yesterday, we walked through that last year and finished our fellowship program in, um, in the fall. And so that they help you really um, focus on the message that you want to send in terms of what are you doing? What is your mission? What is your vision? But how to capture that in the best way to um, share that share that with others. So talk to me a little bit about the mentoring piece, because uh, I know we have a lot of organizations, p- leaders of organizations that listen to our podcast who are looking specifically for uh, ways to get resources, ways to build networks, ways to um, really educate themselves on how to successfully lead an organization. And mentoring is a large part of that. So how did that particularly uh, affect you guys? Yeah, well, we always say Praxis was a game changer for us in so many ways. One, just feeling uh, unified in community with others who are kind of walking through your own journey. But whenever you sit down with top leaders in the nonprofit world for us, uh, there's a business accelerator program program and a nonprofit accelerator program. But for us, it was leaders in the nonprofit world who've walked your journey and you can ask them, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? What advice do you have for us in this area? What did you do whenever you were in this stage of your growth? Uh, It's like little diamonds that they give to you. Um, And they also really kind of going back to what you were talking about with caring for the caregiver, Praxis um, very much encourages vulnerability. And I think that's how we grow really well with each other. It's, it's not a bunch of um, young leaders or older leaders coming together to put their best face on. They're able to share their really, really hard times and then what they've learned from it. So um, it helps you to grow in a really deep way, you know, um, spiritually, but also in terms of growth for your organization. Mm. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like the combination of, of business acumen with spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, because I think in a lot of our nonprofits, we have we didn't have one or the other. And with the marrying of those is what really in, uh, allows for our focus to be relationships, Absolutely. our focus to be uh, responsible best practices, which is what 
uh, we love here at Think Orphan. So uh, fantastic. So talk to me about um, some of the resources that you have in particular found really beneficial. Sure. Well, um, there is a, a book called A Long Way Gone, just to learn a little bit more about child soldiering. I think that's really important. Um, it speaks, Ishmael Bay wrote the book, and he speaks about his own journey of being a child soldier and um, become, you know, getting on the other side of that and what that journey was like. Um, Diane Langberg. Um, if you Google her name, you'll find a number of resources on trauma. Um, there's, there's something called the Global Trauma Initiative. And um, again, something you can Google, Google and, and find out what's being done in the world in terms of global trauma care. Um, a wealth of resources out there for that. Mm, okay. If someone wants to get involved, um, either with Exile International or with the Child Soldier Crisis, education is the first step. Sure. But then what's next? Yeah, I would say go to our website, exileinternational.org. Um, you can email us at info at exileinternational.org. We have a list of resources that we share pretty freely with others. Um, and then social media, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, my website is bethanyhaleywilliams.com as well. Mm-hmm. And we'll have your, uh, your book, your websites, all of that listed for our listeners to be able to check out. Um, tell us about a person who influenced you. Yeah, you know, the first person that comes to mind is Mother Teresa. Um, And then I think about people like Shane Claiborne. I think people who I feel somewhat normal around, and what I mean by that is what what we do is really radical work. We go into really, really deep, dark places, and we put our lives on the line sometimes, and our our team on the ground definitely puts their life on the line, and... um, and it, it is radical to a certain degree, but I think that when you realize that if one child can be saved, that that changes their world, um, then it's really worth everything. So I, so I think, about, um, think about people who maybe the world we look at is are a little crazy, but I think that that's what Jesus calls us to. Mm-hmm. So as we, as we wrap up, I want to have you talk about uh, in your book, you had your kids do something pretty special. You had them write a letter. Tell us about what's in that letter. Yeah, so I wanted to, in the book, um, I get kind of teary when I talk about this, but um, I wanted to be really, really careful when I wrote the book that I honored their stories, and I wanted to end it with their words. So I asked them to write a letter to the world, and I wasn't really prepared for what they wrote, but almost every one of them wrote about forgiveness. And so we captured little snippets of what their letters were, um, or little snippets that were in their letters, and we ended the book in that way. And it was, it's really beautiful. And we'll have that resource listed as well for our listeners to be able to go and check out. Bethany, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a really great conversation and an educational conversation for me. Uh, you know, I was particularly ashamed when I heard you at Praxis Pitch Night to realize that I personally had let the child soldier crisis kind of fall off of my radar. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, bringing that back to our attention and really re-engaging us. Um, particularly in relationships as opposed to causes, because causes fall in and out of trend. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Well, thank you to Bethany and Sam. And I just got to, you know, before we get to Bethany, I just want to give a shout out to Sam Burgess, who has recently come on board full time with Providence. And, you know, before we talk about Bethany, what do you think of Sam, Karen? Shout out for Sam. She did a great job. Yeah, it was much different than your style, Phil, but I really liked it. It was very good. So I'm just going to throw it out there, you know, at risk of me losing my job completely on the Think Orphan podcast. If you liked Sam better, you know, let us know, you know, because I know (laughs) Sam would love to hear that. And I'm sure our team would also get a kick out of it hearing how many of you come and and share how much better Sam is than my interviews. So, you know, and, you know, if, if you really think that I'm better, you know, you know, send me those private emails because I'm going to I'm going to pretend like it's 100 percent no matter what Sam wins. Um, but because uh, I thought it was fantastic. I, I'm just so excited uh, to, to hear the interview because it was it was brand new to me, too, as I was listening to it for the first time, which which is a great a great place. So, Karen, I know how you feel a lot of the time now, you know, just kind of getting the bonus of, of hearing this stuff for the first right. time. It's, it's, it's great. So, and without doing a lot of the, the research too, which is, you know, I did some of it for it, but not all of it. So Sam was able to do all that too. So thanks Sam. And, uh, now we get to talk about the, the, uh, stuff that Bethany shared with us, which, which was pretty fantastic. So Karen, what, what'd you think? Where to begin with Bethany Williams? She's phenomenal. I've been, um, a follower of her work uh, professionally and clinically for quite some time. Um, Our paths somewhat crossed when our family was living in East Africa, not uh, personally crossed, but just like lots of people and connections that were similar. So I've known of her work for quite some time. Um, Yeah, she is so legit. She is doing amazing things um, really uh, across the globe, but definitely in East Africa. And I think she does a great job, especially at the beginning of the interview, just really laying out um, what is a child soldier and what does that look like? What are statistics? Some of those, hearing those numbers again for me um, was just, again, overwhelming, especially um, the the thousands and thousands of children specifically in um, East Africa that have been abductive and kidnapped and enforced into war zones. And so she did a great job of just outlining that, I think, for me and for our audience um, and also being vulnerable enough and brave enough to share her story, which I know she does um, in general and in her book um, and when she speaks. But it's just a great reminder that, um, you know, so many of us have our own stories and how God can take those really hard parts of our stories and and use them for his good in the same way that she reminded us that these really, really hard and difficult and awful things that the children that she's working with have been through in so many instances, um, God is really using those to um, better not only those kiddos and teenagers' lives, but um, the lives of of other people that, that they are now impacting. And so some of her stories and examples were just really powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it, it's, it's goes, we've talked about this a lot with an issue like child soldiers. It's kind of like last week with the human trafficking and, and, you know, and these are issues we don't want to believe are actually happening. You know, we want to believe they're just a movie. They're just a documentary that, you know, happened in the past, but is, is, is no longer going on. You know, these tragedies are going on. They're happening. They are happening in our world today. Um, and, if, if you pretend like they don't exist, does they don't go away. Um, that being said, 
you know, I'm not expecting people to hop on a plane like was that machine gun preacher that came out a few years ago that, you know, and just to go and engage in it, you know, first. Now, everyone's got a role and some people that may be your role, but I I doubt it. I'd say that the odds are that's not what you're called to do right now. But, you know, how can you get involved with these things? How can you get involved by educating yourselves on the reality of them? And like you, Karen, I loved just hearing the beginning of that. And again, like it's not something I probably would have gone into like that. And so I'm so glad Sam did this interview, you know, because I think we're all better for it to, to understand that issue so much better and deeper. Um, because it is something that we don't hear a lot about. You hear it in, in you know, fits and starts if some massive, you know, uh, what, what was that in Nigeria with Boko Haram a few years ago, right, with the right. mall. Um, you hear about that. But not if it's just hidden in the, in the bush and not if it's, which is usually where it happens. And so I just, I'm so encouraged to hear, and like you said, to hear, you know, how Bethany came in. It's their own trauma and sharing her own trauma and how it prepared her for the work she's doing today. You know, her, her, you know, uh, background, her experience, all of that is just so, I just love how God brings people to the right place at the right time to do certain things. Um, I know that's my story. I know it's your story in many different ways. So that was just super encouraging to me. So hopefully you, you folks out there um, learned a lot as well in this and were encouraged. Um, but uh, what, what else, what else uh, kind of jumped out at you? I love um, in their program, um, first and foremost, that it's obviously trauma-informed mm-hmm. and um, really bringing out these facts that we know about kiddos and teenagers is that they express their emotions through music and art and dance and play and incorporate incorporating those in the healing. I love that they're growing, um, leaders that they're trying to build relationships and help these kiddos and teenagers understand what does, um, peace building look like and conflict resolution. One of my favorite parts about their program is the way that they intentionally use language language is so important. I say this all the time in my office, um, working with my patients, semantics are so important Mm -hmm. though, especially when we're talking about identity and the way that this program, um, even identifies the, the kiddos and teenagers that they're working with. They either have hope children or young peacemakers. Mm -hmm. And so their identity is not found in their story and, and what they were and what they were forced to do or the circumstances of their life. That's not their identity. Their identity is they're young peacemakers or they're a hope child. And that's so important, uh, not only for these kiddos in East Africa and throughout the globe where hopefully this program will be replicated, but in our own, in our own homes, in our families, in our relationships. Yeah, absolutely. It actually reminds me of another organization there in Uganda called Village of Hope, and they they work with former child soldiers. And I remember going and visiting them and seeing all the different therapies they had as well for these children. And the one thing that stuck out to me is everyone said, was it, how was it? I mean, what was it like? And I said, honestly, it was watching a bunch of kids playing. And, yeah. and, and it was, it was like, as it should be. Yes, exactly. I was watching kids being kids. And it was so encouraging because, you know, and they talked about all the different ways that they get the kids to be able to actually share their story, 
because, you know, they can't really address it until they know the story, right? right. And you know that, you know? But sometimes it's going to have to come out in drawing pictures. Sometimes it's going to have to come out in drama, sometimes in play, sometimes in, you know, sport. Whatever it may be, there's different ways to draw things. Sometimes just simply asking the question. But, you know, I, I don't know that firsthand, but, you know, just hearing from so many people about that and what that looks like, it was, it was you know, and I know you can speak to that firsthand, but, uh you know, why don't you do that right now? You know, can you share like me? I don't know if you have a story or if you just have just general, you know, kind of um, talking about it. Yeah, I, I think that in, in the consultation that I have the privilege of doing with organizations and ministries or even just schools um, globally, that's one of the first things that I ask them about, like, what's the layout of your environment? Like, how often do your kids or teenagers get to be outside? Um, I love the ratio of like every two hours, let's get their bodies moving. If we're using their brains, let's use bodies. Let's get a good nutrition, healthy protein snack every two hours and let them be kids, let them play um, in general. But of course, when we're working on healing big hurts, when we're working on trauma, then knowing that even a traditional approach here in, in Western United States um, of what might look like play therapy in a clinical psychologist's office, mm-hmm. that is still not what is going right. to be probably effective um, globally. And knowing that kids need to play and they need to um, engage in culturally relevant and co- culturally, um, what's the word, like things that they're used to doing. Um, mm-hmm. So that, those are the things that I have tried to help organizations develop. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much more. Obviously, we don't have enough time to, to go into all the details of it. But this is something that you're really working with and really wanting to know more about out there. I know there's people all over the world doing this, and whether you're in the U.S., whether you're you know, in a different part of the world. These are, these are things that you really need to understand if you're working with these kids that have been gone that have gone through trauma and so I just encourage you to send an email and Karen can get you in touch with the right resources and um, and maybe even do a consultation herself with you so I think that's important that's why we do this right we, we do this to connect and and I know that uh, there's, there's so much more to this conversation but unfortunately as with every episode we gotta we gotta bring it to a close here and before we do I have a quick recommendation for you. It's a book that I just finished. A uh, book has been out there for a few years, but I I loved it. It's the first of the Boundaries books that I've read. I have a feeling I'll read a couple more of them because I've really enjoyed this one. Uh, Henry Cloud uh, wrote this book. Most of the Boundaries books are by Cloud and Townsend. This one is just by Henry Cloud. I'm sure that he had help from other people as well, but on the cover, his is the only name. But it's Boundaries for Leaders, and it's just a great book that goes through um, the importance of people. Um, you know, yes, you're, you're in charge as a leader, um, when you have that title, but that's not what allows you to lead people. Um, it's really the influence. It's really understanding people. It's really making sure that people are able to be in charge of the things that they should be in charge of and to help them to be able to do that. Um, talks about positive thinking and how we can get through, um, uh, some of the negatives and some of the pessimism that often just ruins culture and organizations. And so there's so many other things in that book. I, I'm not even going to pretend to go through all of them right now. You know, maybe I'll get Dr. Cloud on the show. If you're listening, Dr. Cloud out there, you know, you know, just drop me an email. Let's, uh, let's get you on the show. Talk more about it. So anyway, great book, Boundaries for Leaders. And uh, look forward to hearing your feedback on that on the rest of the show. And again, 
you know, most importantly today, if you're still listening, I know you have thoughts on Sam and her interview skills. So that, you know, <laughs> give me your feedback on that. And, uh, you know, in all seriousness, let's end the, let's end the show um, as I usually do with it, it, my prayer for you to really take all that you learned today and use it in awesome ways to love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every single day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.